I'd like to begin by going back to something that I mentioned at the beginning of the retreat, and that is the idea of cultivating in our meditation an inner solitude. Learning as we sit here to be to be comfortable, uh, to be able to be content with being alone. Of course we're in a room with many people, but we're afforded the support of the group to come to rest um, within the heart of our own experience, to let the mind and the chatter of the mind quieten down and experience as more and more uh, a stillness and a quiet that's very embodied, very much felt in our flesh and our bones, and coming to rest. A word that we find used very much in um, early Buddhist writings, uh, in Pali, when the Buddha speaks of meditation, he describes it as a kind of dwelling. The word he used is viharati, which means to dwell, to abide, to live, really, in the sense of where do you live? We dwell somewhere, we abide somewhere. And this is the metaphor that he uses when he talks of mindfulness, when he talks of uh, uh, samadhi, when he talks of jhana, which is a more sort of focused kind of samadhi, that in every instance he talks of dwelling in mindfulness, dwelling in the body, dwelling in concentration. He likewise talks about dwelling in love, in compassion, in sympathetic joy, in equanimity. He talks of dwelling in emptiness. Always this same term, dwelling, dwelling, dwelling. Yet somehow that gets lost in translation. We don't find that language so emphatically present in English translations. We may have heard of the word vihara. Vihara is usually translated as a monastery. place, But it's really a place where people live who happen to be monks. It's a dwelling. <clears throat> so when we talk of the Brahma viharas, love, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, it's the same word, vihara means dwelling. To me there's something rather important about this. That when we sit here we're actually learning to dwell on the earth in another way. In a way that's not driven by our anxieties, our longings, our fears, our memories, but coming to settle, coming to rest on this earth, in this body, in this mind. 
But this requires, very often, a withdrawal, a, a setting ourselves apart from our everyday lives, as being on a retreat here. And once we get here, learning to somehow disentangle ourselves from the, the tumult and the chaos of what's going round and round <coughs> in, our, in our heads or in our emotional life. And this takes time. And it's often a struggle uh, to really somehow manage this inner solitude. But we could ask, well, but, 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 but why do we want to be still and quiet and present? What's the point of that? Let me here introduce um, Agnes Martin again. I realise this retreat is becoming a <laughs> workshop on Agnes, Agnes Martin, which wasn't actually my intention. But um, what she has to say, I think, is useful. Um, she says, you have to hold your mind still in order to hear inspiration clearly. In other words, the, the stillness of meditation is not an end in itself. It's not if once you manage to get still, you can say, done it, great, here we are, reach the goal. No, the stillness is actually a way of being able to see and hear more clearly. And by see and hear more clearly, it doesn't mean to be able to sort of pin down the truths of Buddhism, to see impermanence more clearly and so on, although that might well be part of it. But I feel also it allows us to hear um, our own inspiration. It allows us to reconnect with the sources of what matters most for us. To reconnect with what moves us most deeply. What inspires us. What breathes life into us. In other words, it establishes over time another, another sort of platform, if you wish from whence we can reconsider how we might live better. And more and more as we become familiar with meditation, it becomes almost second nature. It becomes a space of mind that accompanies us more and more wherever we might go. And this is another feature that people from all different traditions have noticed about solitude, is that solitude can be practiced in the midst of a noisy and busy world. In other words, there's a, it's not just what we do on a retreat, but that kind of stillness and attention and sensitivity um, can be with us even in the midst of turmoil. And this, I think, is a very important point, is it's here, really, that we find the, the link between what we do on our cushion here and how we go about our lives uh, every day 
in the world. Agnes Martin also realises that solitude is crucial uh, for this uh, slowing down and stilling of the mind. Uh, she says we need to slow down the pace of the mind so it is possible to explore the mind. If we're not still, it's difficult to really, in a sense, become more deeply intimate with the inner workings of our life. But she also notices that once you start to do this, you also open yourself up to fear. She calls it terror. And we begin to realise that by separating ourselves out from our world, by separating ourselves out from the chattering mind and just coming to rest, that that also can expose um, memories, um, uh, fears, uh, anxieties, that perhaps in some way have been kept under control by our obsessive involvement with other people, with our responsibilities in the world, with our chattering mind. One begins to get the sense that we spend a lot of time running away from ourselves. This is something Montaigne points out too. He says, I feel as though I'm fleeing myself the whole time. I'm racing away. He, he uses the word, he feels as though he's constantly leaking into the world. It's, it's, his life is spilling out. He says, I'm like a, a battered old barrel full of holes and my life keeps leaching out into the world and becoming lost to me. Now, interestingly, the Buddha uses the same image. He calls them asava which means leakages. There's something about the way we have evolved um, that keeps sending us away from what the reality of our life is actually revealing to us. So there's something about this practice that um, frees us from certain entanglements, perhaps, but also exposes us to, um, uh, to fears that we've been sort of keeping at bay through our endless busyness. And she says that in solitude, this fear is lived and finally understood. I think it's it's possible that for some of us at least when we start asking questions like what is this or perhaps even more disturbingly to acknowledge I don't know what this is we're, we're in a way making ourselves very vulnerable and it's not uncommon that this vulnerability 
is experienced as a kind of fear. It's a fear of letting go of what is familiar. And why that can be fearful is because what is familiar gives us something to hold on to. What is familiar is also reassuring. It's nice to wake up every morning and we're in the same room. Uh, it's nice to meet old friends. It's nice to have routines. Because this keeps the, the world in, in order and shape. But when we begin to, in a way, retreat, either into a retreat house or into ourselves, um, we are allowing ourselves permission um, to let go of what is familiar uh, and to open ourselves to what is unfamiliar or what is perhaps even unknown. If we are serious in asking this question, what is this, and to say, I don't know, uh, we are taking quite a risk. Um, we're also implicitly acknowledging that there may be something more to life than just going through our routines, comforting ourselves with our familiar behaviours and friends and objects and so on. That if we take this practice seriously, we're actually opening ourselves to something that we cannot predict, something we cannot control, and something that might expose us to um, what can be unsettling and even frightening. Agnes Martin calls this the dragon. And she says, the dragon pounds through the inner streets, shaking everything and breathing fire. For her, the, um, the dragon, which is more or less equivalent to the devil, I think, in her thinking, the dragon is most strongly associated with pride. Again, Montaigne speaks of presumption and vanity. She says that where pride walks, nothing of life remains. It is the supreme destroyer of life. Pride leaves nothing in its path. It is death in life. Now, pride is here being used as a rather catch-all phrase for our um, self-preoccupation, our incessant um, uh, concern about me, our egoism, if you wish. Now, at one level, this is just the way we are built. We are priding machines, if you wish. That's what the human organism does. It selfs. Um, it uh, is uh, intensely preoccupied with the survival of me. 
quite natural, nothing wrong in that. The problem is that as long as we are held in the grip of this kind of pride, this kind of self-absorption, pathologically we would call it narcissism, this everything we look at reflects me back. As long as we're in enthrall to this, it's very difficult to really ask this question, what is this? To be able to acknowledge, I don't know. I don't know who I am really at all. But we need the safety, the crucible of, of sitting, uh, of focusing the mind. And also we need the support of like-minded people our fellows on this retreat during this week uh, to give us the, uh, the encouragement almost to be in this together one with each other so that you know we have the strength and also the courage uh, to keep pursuing this question I think one of the reasons that we find meditation difficult is that um, there's a part of our mind that really feels threatened by it. Um, it's always puzzled me why such a simple thing like watching your breath can be so difficult. You know, sit still, watch your breath, count to ten, and as you know, if you've tried this exercise, it's very difficult to get to ten. By about six or seven, you lose count. But why is that? What is it within us that is incapable of performing such a simple thing? Why is it that the mind would rather do anything than count ten breaths? Or simply stay with whatever object we have chosen to dwell on. Why are we always running away? Now there could be many explanations for that given who we are as individuals, but broadly speaking, once we've gone through the physical discomfort explanation, once we've gone through the, the psychological type explanation, I think we hit the existential explanation. Namely, that we're constantly running away because we find it very difficult to embrace the condition of our birth and our death, particularly our death. That when we stop and look, we realise that we're just a beating heart, a piece of flesh, uh, that will be around for a while and then will stop. And meditation exposes that in a very undeniable, perhaps even brutal way. We come face to face with who we are. And all of the, the pride and the egoism and the self-obsession is revealed to be somewhat... Uh, in, in a way, a sort of a, a charade that we play to keep ourselves occupied. 
For Agnes Martin, the dragon is not something that we can slay or kill as in a medieval myth, St. Michael or St. George killing the dragon. Although in our Christian culture, that is, of course, a very potent uh, symbol or archetype of what we are up against in this kind of work. It requires killing the dragon. But this, I think, is rather simplistic to take that in any way literally. Pride is too deeply embedded within us to simply be discarded. We probably have to accept that it will always be with us. It's part and parcel of our neurobiology, probably. That's how we'd explain it today. So this was also the view of Agnes Martin. And she says that all we can do is become completely familiar with the dragon. In other words, to allow ourselves to befriend the dragon. To allow ourselves to be able to observe what's going on with a degree of detached irony. We see it playing itself out, we see what it's doing, but we don't need to get caught up in it. But nor should we feel that it's only until we can get rid of it that I can begin to practice properly. It's simply an unavoidable feature of life itself. Agnes Martin does recognise, though, if you become familiar and befriend the dragon, the dragon can fall asleep. The dragon might doze off. The dragon will have less to do. And for her, the most effective way to send the dragon to sleep was through making art, doing artwork. And that was for her, her practice. And we may also have practices in our life that are able to focus our energies, are able to somehow override our hesitations and our fears and our self-absorption, so that our work somehow becomes a process of transcending what keeps us stuck. And we will then find moments, maybe more and more moments where our work becomes effortless. It just naturally and spontaneously plays itself out. And I think the same is true here in a retreat, in a meditation practice, that uh, by, by just keeping at the work, and I think it's useful to think of what we're doing as work, it's hard work to sit still and do nothing. Sounds strange, but uh, it's true. Um, and it's through this work that we then arrive at moments, longer or shorter moments, where there is, all of a sudden, a genuine calm a genuine quietening down. The dragon goes to sleep. And at that moment, other possibilities emerge. 
at that moment we can tap into an awareness, a consciousness that is not driven and impelled by our fears and our hatreds and so on. But before we can get there, we have to somehow work through these fears, these egoistic moments, to arrive at a place of greater stillness. But Agnes Martin Phillips also ends this reflection with a warning. But you cannot be complacent she says, the dragon can we reawaken at any time, which we might have found. There's no room for complacency. Uh, we need always, I think, to be on our guard against the eruptions of these familiar habits and patterns that so easily send us off course. So what I'd suggest today, um, as we now we're in our penultimate full day of the retreat, see where this practice has taken you so far. Consider what you've found to be particularly helpful in the last three or four days. And, 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 and celebrate that. You know, feel that this is something good that we've managed to get to this place in our practice. And you may want to just stay with that and deepen that and refine that. And again, it may not be something you can put a label onto very easily. What you're appreciating might be something that's very difficult to put into words. It's more a bodily feeling, perhaps. A curious set of of, of sensations and, and feelings and emotions and moods and mental states. But it feels right somehow when you're in those moments. So allow that, allow yourself to come back and back into that zone, into that space that you've been working on over these days. You might also like to um, shift perhaps a little more attention to the I don't know. So you can alternate asking what is this with simply saying to yourself I don't know. <coughs> I don't know what this is. Uh, in all humility I don't know what this is. I don't know who I am. But to do so within a safe and protected space of stillness, of being held by the group, and to allow yourself to feel deeply this not knowing, and to acknowledge that it can sometimes be frightening, and to try to embrace the fear as well. Don't let the fear, if it arises, take over. Hold it, embrace it. Uh, keep your awareness at least one millimeter wider than whatever is going on. Don't let the fear overflow and become 
the dragon, as it were. Also, as we move into the latter part of the retreat, come back to listening. Listening not just to the sounds outside, but listening for the voice of inspiration that Agnes Martin would have called it. Listening internally as well as externally. Listening as though that were your kind of metaphor for meditation itself. Not looking for or observing or watching, although that of course has its place too. But inverting that to a listening stance where we open ourselves to allow whatever arises to be heard metaphorically. It's as though we were listening to our breath and our body and our mind. And what, it, what is it like to listen? To just open ourselves and allow the sounds to, to enter us. So try to adopt a not knowing, listening and patient mind without any expectations of getting some result. Simply accepting and being open to whatever arises in our minds, outside, wherever. Centering that in this kind of inquiry, but at the same time not letting the inquiry narrow our focus or make us become physically or mentally tense or tight. It's possible to be completely engaged with this question and at the same time to be completely at rest. I think Martin mentioned earlier the idea of effortless effort, an idea we find a lot in Zen, which again sounds like a contradiction in terms, and logically it is. But experientially, it's not. We can be completely and passionately engaged with something without tensing and stressing ourselves at the same time but remaining in an open, spacious mind. If you watch the video that I mentioned of Agnes Martin on YouTube, there's some shots of her mate doing her art. And what's remarkable about it is she's completely laid back. Uh, she's, just, she's a little old lady uh, with paintbrush, and uh, there's something very, very relaxed about what she's doing. And yet this is a, 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 a seeing her at work, and this is what means everything to her. Executing another square of white lines, or whatever it happens to be. So I'll stop there. <laughs>